Thank you for joining me. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and this is Nature Revisited. Neil DeBall, who has dedicated his life to the propagation of native plants and the native plant movement, is recognized internationally as an expert and pioneer in the native plant ecology. Neil believes that as caretakers of the planet, we must work harder to preserve and increase the diversity of our native plants. So when I decided I wanted to learn more about the history and the changes of the native plant movement, I asked Neil if he would join me on Nature Revisited to share with us the importance not only of native plants, but gardens themselves, and to talk about the cultural shift we are seeing take place when it comes to the plants we are using in our gardens. Neil DeBall is the owner and CEO of Prairie Nursery in Westfield, Wisconsin, which was one of the first nurseries to grow and sell native plants, beginning in 1972. So please, be forewarned, Neil DeBall and his love of native plants is very contagious. So are you ready to talk a little bit about the native plant movement? Absolutely. So when and where did the beginnings of the native plant movement really start? And what are some of the highlights of the past 40 years? Well, it started, at, most people would agree, at the University of Wisconsin Arboretum in Madison, Wisconsin. One of the inspirations for restoration, ecological restoration in the early, early days was Aldo Leopold in coordination with other uh, professors and staff members at the university. So in the 1930s, Aldo Leopold, who was horrified at the loss of habitat and the destruction of the prairies, mostly by agriculture at the time, wanted to make sure that there was a record that was preserved of the native prairies of the region. So they started restoring prairies on a former farm field that was purchased to be the university's arboretum. So this is really the this is the first and foremost prairie restoration using native plants. Until that time, prairies were viewed as an impediment to agriculture and development. Were being plowed up, and wet prairies were being drained so they could be farmed. So it was something to be gotten rid of, rather than something to be celebrated and preserved and restored. So that was really the start. So it started as an academic adventure. And it spread to other universities in Illinois, Iowa, eventually to Minnesota, Ohio, other places. Didn't really become part of the landscape consciousness among people until the 1970s. And at that point, people started to see, hey, these are really cool plants, but it was on an extremely limited basis. Only a few people here and there were dabbling in native plants. Now, interestingly, native woodland plants were commonly planted, things like bloodroot and jack-in-the-pulpit and trillium. These have been planted for over 100 years, so people appreciated the woodland plants, but they did not understand or appreciate the native prairie plants. 
And, of course, the whole rage in horticulture is to find the newest and the greatest and the best and the improved. And these native plants, they're just, you know, free and they just grow here. We want that stuff from Asia or from uh, Europe or some other Japan, other part of the world, which, which is different. So there was really limited appreciation of our native plants because, hey, they were just here. So when I got into this, it was 1977. I was a student at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. My professor in vegetation management, Keith White, someone should do a project on these prairies we're trying to restore. I said, that sounds interesting. As I started to research the prairies, I realized how incredibly complex these communities were and the various associations of grasses and flowers and a few shrubs. And it just completely and utterly grabbed me. And now I was hooked. So that's how I became involved with it. And then it was on December 21st, 1978, a friend and I were very frustrated that no management was being done. So we just lit a prairie field on fire. (laughs) And it was a field of switchgrass primarily. It was like lighting a gigantic bonfire, and this thing took off, and we couldn't get within 50 feet of it. And there was a a foot of snow on the ground, and it burned the the vegetation above ground with this ferocity that you couldn't believe. And we had to back away from it, and there was no way we could control it. This this was the genie out of the bottle. (laughs) Eventually, the fire department showed up, and we ran for two miles without even (laughs) looking back. Well, of course, everybody knew who did it. The people at the grounds department at the university said, Neil, would you like a job working on the prairie? I'm like, hey, that sounds great. So that's how I really got into this and then started planting prairies at the university and so on and so forth. And went into business in 1982, uh, taking over an existing small nursery called Prairie Nursery. I didn't actually start it. It was started by a gentleman by the name of Bob Smith. And Bob had seen butterfly weed, Asclepias tuberosa, growing alongside the road in Marquette County, Wisconsin, where our nursery is located. And he thought, wow, that's a beautiful flower. I wonder if I can grow that. So he collected seeds in the fall and planted them in his vegetable garden that fall. And lo and behold, they germinated the next spring, and he was able to grow plants and then include them, move them around and put them in his garden. It wasn't even, it wasn't even an operation. It was just his little hobby. And in 1972, somebody asked him if they could buy some plants from him. And said, well, I suppose. And that is how Prairie Nursery was born almost 50 years ago. And so it was just a hobby for him for 10 years. And when he turned 68, I heard the grapevine. And I was a customer of his. I purchased seed for my restorations at the University of Wisconsin in Green Bay. And I heard that he was retiring. So I said, Bob, can we move the plants to Green Bay? He says, well, I suppose. But hey, if you wanted to come down here and run it, that's a possibility. I'm like, oh, my God. Moved to Westfield, population 1,100. Hmm, that's interesting. So I went down, looked at it. It was this little backyard, not even a half an acre. And I said, you know, if I don't do this, I will kick myself for the rest of my life. And so I moved to Westfield and started working, growing native plants almost 40 years ago. Can we talk a little bit about how the native plant movement, which was sometimes called the Dutch wave back in the 70s and the 80s, can you talk a little bit about how the Europeans kind of got hold of what was going on in the prairie and how that connection kind of happened. Yes, it's very interesting. Normally, trends in the United States are originated on the coast, either East Coast or West Coast, and the Midwest is always the last to find out about anything. Very seldom that you see a trend come out of the Midwest, but this whole prairie trend, which originated here in Wisconsin as part of our environmental heritage of John Muir and all the Leopold, this was a leadership situation for a completely new relationship with the environment and providing and, and respecting all life forms, plants, animals, etc. So it spread from Wisconsin, again, as I mentioned, to other states in the Midwest, 
I think that there's such a strong naturalistic gardening movement in Germany and Holland and, and to some degree in England that people said, wow, let's see what's going on over here and came to learn about what these crazy people are doing recreating these prairie meadows. And I think that Piet and Noel and various other people have adopted this kind of style and then added their own elements of design to it to great effect. It's been a very interesting hybridization process between the, the two styles. You know, it's really interesting because there's really almost no no contact that we had with Europeans for this movement. It was very much just this thing that came out of the Midwest and was nurtured in the Midwest. So we never we didn't go to Europe to learn anything or to see those styles. We just kind of use these natural ecosystems as our models, and I think that's the, that is the essence of this style of landscaping. Europeans use their own models of gardens that they brought from the old country and applied them for quite a few hundred years until people started using the natural ecosystems or the native ecosystems of the central Midwest for their types of gardens. And that was that's the radical difference, absolutely radical difference, because it's not a human creation. It is a more natural creation. So what do you think some of the, the biggest obstacles over the years has been in getting people to recognize those native plants as beneficial to their gardens and landscapes? That is a great question, Stefan, because when I went into business in 1982, I couldn't give the stuff away. I mean, literally could not give it away. People didn't want it. They were all weeds. There was no respect for these plants. They were wild plants. They were to be plowed up. They were to be replaced by other European plants or whatever. So nobody wanted them because they were not part of the culture. So they were not accepted. Prairie meadows were considered messy. And for a lot of people still, they're considered messy. They're not organized. The plants aren't in their little places. They're not surrounded by mulch. I mean, you look at the American garden. What is it? It's a mulch garden with a few plants stuck in it. It's a, it's a travesty. It's not a plant community. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't support very, it supports very little life depending on the species that you're using. So these are gardens for life, these native gardens, which of course have native plants, which attract a wide variety of pollinators and, and other creatures that form the foundation of the food chain. But that was an impediment to the to the average gardener because there's bugs and bees and rodents and snakes and all these terrible creatures that will come to your, your natural garden. So you don't want anything like that. My God, we want any bees. That was so interesting. 40 years ago, nobody wanted bees because we thought they would sting them. And now everybody wants bees. So this is all part of the cultural change. This is The mission is being accomplished where people are realizing the importance of all forms of life and how they can be part of that program and reintegrate themselves with nature and really really live in harmony, true harmony, by planting native plants and encouraging all these different creatures in their gardens. And I tell people, if your plants don't have holes in their leaves, you're not feeding anybody. Your garden is a failure. You have to have holes in your leaves. Don't spray anything. Get rid of all your insecticides. Let all the creatures have their place. And you will revel in that. Instead of having to have the perfect garden and the perfect leaves, you want stuff to get eaten because you know then that you're supporting insects that are supporting birds that are supporting the entire food web. Why are native plants so important to both us as humans and to the larger scale to our planet? Well, here's where I will defer to Douglas Tallamy, an entomologist at the University of Maryland who's done absolutely phenomenal work. And I encourage everybody to read his various books. One is Bringing Nature Home. And he, he proved the extremely important link between native plants and native insects that depend upon them and then all the life forms that then feed upon these insects 
all the way up the food chain, not to mention the pollinators. One-third of our foods are pollinated. So if you want blueberries and almonds and walnuts and all sorts of fruits and berries, you need pollinators. And so the co-evolution between native plants and native insects and, and other pollinators is something that takes thousands, if not millions of years. So when people plant non-native plants, there's no relationship between many, if any, of the insects and pollinators here in a new environment. Should we even have gardens? We've got to have gardens. Absolutely. Um, if you look at what's going on now between development and loss of habitat, continued loss of habitat, agriculture is still plowing up land, including some prairies that have been plowed up in the last 10 years, native prairies, and it's it's the continued loss is terrible, and of course suburbs are expanding and commercial job buildings are taking up space. And another issue here is if you look at public lands that have been preserved, a lot of them are being invaded by non-native, highly invasive plants that are taking over and destroying the native plants or suppressing them severely enough that they are less than functional. So we have losses of habitat on our public lands that we thought we had protected, but in fact are not because we don't have the budgets to go and get rid of the, the invasives. So we're losing ground there. We're losing ground in development and agriculture. So where can we possibly make up the difference and hopefully see some level of recovery to preserve butterflies, bees, birds, all sorts of insects? And that is in our home landscape. So gardens are absolutely essential to the future, and gardening with native plants is going to make a huge difference. When you look at the amount of area that is covered by urban and suburban landscapes in America, it's over a third of the country. That's a huge amount of territory that is developed. So this is our opportunity to plant natives on our own properties and help preserve biodiversity and, quite frankly, our own survival. Do you see that people are starting to get it, and do you feel people are starting to understand it? Yes. There's no question. People are starting to make the connection. And it certainly transcends my business. This is universal across the native plant industry. And the, the interest and growth that we've seen in the last five years has been tremendous. And it was a really slow process early on. Just been gradually climbing and gradually climbing, but it has really accelerated in the last few years because I think people are really coming to realize that the pollinator crisis, the insect crisis, the invertebrate crisis is a real thing. It is a serious, serious threat, not only to our existence, but to the existence of all life forms on the planet. And, you know, Homo sapiens is able to insulate itself from all sorts of environmental disasters to some degree. Other species are going extinct. They're going extinct by the hundreds a year. Ah, it doesn't matter. I still got food on the table. I got water. What's the big deal? So Homo sapiens can insulate itself to the bitter end. But it will eventually catch up. And I like to tell people, Homo sapiens merely awaits its appointment with the sediments. There is no logical reason to hasten this process. So as we knock out all the underpinnings of the ecosystems that we depend upon for food, clean water, and clean air, as we knock out all those pieces, we will eventually it will catch up to us, and we will pay the price. And show some respect. Show some respect for all these other life forms that you depend upon, that you don't appreciate, and you don't understand. People are finally starting to understand the interconnectivity. And this is the future. This is truly the future of our culture. So if we can adopt some of teachings of the First Nation peoples that were here before the European invasion, I think that we will see a tremendous sea change in the way that we respond and protect and respect the environment, and it will be better for everybody and everything.
What role should our garden centers in our nurseries, such as your own, what role should they play in this issue moving forward? <laughs> this is really interesting. Um, garden centers respond to customer demand. So they are not going to grow something that people won't buy. And so people will often go to garden centers and say, why don't you have these native plants? And they will say, well, nobody wants them. But in many cases, people don't want them because the vast majority of the buying public may still not be educated. I think that is changing. Okay, But for garden centers, they're reliant upon their local clients. They're only going to drive, what, 20, 30, 40, 50 miles to come to their garden centers. So they're only going to supply the plants that those people are going to purchase. And if there's no demand for native plants, they won't produce them or buy them in or wherever they get them from. They won't offer them. So there has to be demand from the customers in order to get the garden center owners to stock those plants. So people have to go to the garden center and say, hey, why don't you have this or why don't you have that? I want this. I want that. And if the garden center owners think they can make money on it, believe me, they will provide them. Am I going to get a better product if I go to somebody who's doing a mail order than I am going to my nursery? Well, let me ask you your, your first question. And that is, will you get a better plant from a mail-order nursery or will you get a better plant from a garden center? Quite frankly, uh, I don't think it makes a lot of difference. And I will tell you, in the first 25, 30 years that I was in business, everybody always asked, well, how do I know your plants are going to be good? And that's a very valid concern. But in the last 10 years, because we, we and others have figured out how to safely ship plants and get them to our customers in a timely fashion when they order them. So I don't think there's any a really big difference as far as the quality. But a lot of people just want to go and shop. And some people like to shop on the internet and some people like to shop in person. And that's a personal choice. So I don't think if one is better or worse than the other, it's just a different way of obtaining the plants that you want for your landscape. So it's a big difference in what product you're selling, whether it's an herbaceous plant or tree or shrub, and whether it's a named variety native or just an open pollinated native, as far as the actual biodiversity and structure of that ecosystem that you're creating. You've kind of already answered this question, but I'm going to ask because I think it's worth repeating. What is our responsibility to the environment and the planet when it comes to the way we garden and use plants? Well, to quote a friend of mine, there is no right or wrong in ecology, merely consequences. So, when you say, what is our responsibility? That depends on what you view our role as, as human beings on the planet Earth. So where do we fit in? And I think one of the reasons that we have this issue in our relationship with the environment is that we start off with a preconception that we are the crown of creation and all other species are subservient to us. So the question is, are we masters or are we stewards? We have dominion over all, all life. So we start with this supposition that we are somehow superior to all the other forms of life and they are theirs for us to take and use. And we do. Every species has an impact on other species, whether you're a wolf hunting a deer or an insect eating a leaf. Everything has their destruction in the creation of life. So the question is, where do we fit in and how should we relate to other forms of life? I am of the stewardship opinion, not the dominion opinion, and this is what we have to learn to do. And you've got 7 billion people on the earth. Where, how much farther can you go 
before we deplete it. So we have got to learn to be stewards and take care of our land, our water, our plants, our animals. And that comes to a complete and utter reorientation in our relationship to other forms of life. And that comes down to respect. And until we learn to respect other forms of life and to make sure that they have an opportunity to thrive and, and fulfill their role, which leads in many cases to our success and survival, we will not be helping ourselves. We will be harming ourselves. And you can see the impact of that in the loss of topsoil on farmland, the creation of the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, the giant plastic islands in the Pacific Ocean. The list goes on and on and on. And where is it all going to end? How is it going to come out? So you, if you, until you learn to respect the planetary systems and all life forms on it, you're going to be placing yourself in great danger. So show some respect. How have you seen politics play a role, both positive and negative, over the years when it comes to the native plant movement? That's a, that's a very interesting question. It kind of has just occurred on its own in people's backyards. The real only politics are usually these lawn ordinances that people have to deal with that were written as anachronisms for a lawn-dominated ecosystem or lawn-dominated landscape. And when you challenge that, this is where you get into subverting the dominant paradigm. And where did this obsession with the lawn come from? I would posit that it's a socioeconomic agreement, a tacit agreement among middle-class people that this is what we do and this is how we do it and here's why. And if you go back to where the lawn came from, at least the United States, we emulated the wealthy landowners and gentry of England. So it's a status symbol. So when you saw the rise of the middle class in the late 19th century and the creation of suburbs, what did people do with their landscapes? They didn't have to grow food on them anymore. They could have a completely, utterly useless landscape called a lawn. And so this became the middle class, upper class standard way of saying this is, this is who we are and this is how we enforce this. So anybody that violates this unspoken agreement of the middle class, upper class lawn is in deep trouble, not because we don't like your plants, but because we don't like your culture. You are not part of the dominant culture that says this stands for who we are. And so this is why people who dared to plant something other than lawn became social pariahs in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Now, there's a difference between just letting your lawn go wild and have weeds and all sorts of things there and actually having a nice prairie garden, completely different. But there was no distinction made between anything over six inches tall that had to be mowed down, no matter whether it was beautiful blazing stars and coneflowers and all these wonderful butterfly-attracting and insect-attracting plants that was irrelevant. So we had battle after battle after battle. And for the most part, at least in the Midwest, we now have ordinances that allow people to have these sorts of gardens. It's astounding to me that you still have this resistance predominantly on the East Coast where people can't have meadows and they can't have prairies in their neighborhoods because they have these anachronistic, absurd, and unconstitutional laws about what you can plant in your yard. Now that's changing. But this has been the real political struggle. But that's the politics that we've seen is local ordinances restricting people from expressing themselves and creating life-sustaining gardens instead of life-suppressing laws. Since I started this podcast, I've been speaking to a lot of people from the Midwest, and it does seem to me that there's more interest on native plants in the Midwest than there is in the rest of the country. Do you agree with that? And if so, why do you think that is? I, I would I would agree with that historically, 
in the last 50 years, absolutely. I think it's changing, and you're seeing this. But it's much more gradual on the coast than it is in the Midwest. And why is that the case in the Midwest? That's an extremely good question, Stefan. And I would really say that I think it's it came from Wisconsin, and Wisconsin has this heritage of stewardship and ecological engagement with the environment. And so that culture exuded outward into our neighboring states of Illinois, Iowa. Minnesota has a similar culture. And where that comes from, John Muir, Aldo Leopold, as I mentioned previously, I think that that culture is essential to who we are. And I think also Midwesterners are much less encumbered by style. And you can take that how you wish, good or bad. You have much more emphasis on historical style in Boston or New York or Washington, D.C. or Savannah, Georgia or San Francisco. Or... So in the Midwest, it's like, hey, whatever. You know, we don't really care about your styles. We're just us. So I don't think that there was this this requirement that Midwesterners conform to these standard styles that are more common where the English garden is dominant in New England and New York and the East Coast, you know, with Midwest, who cares about English gardens? You know, we don't have an English climate. We have a continental climate. It's brutal. You have to have plants that can survive that. And you know what? Our native plants can do that. So I think there's a, a sense of utilitarian Midwestern style here, if you, if you can even use the word style. This is what works. This is what we can do. Now, there could be other factors too, but I think that's a big part of it. So for me, that's kind of my list of questions. What else would you like to share with my listeners about what we've been talking about today? Well, you know, I think, Stefan, we've really touched on what I think are the most important aspects of why native plants are so important. And it really comes back to reintegrating people into the environment and the natural world. And we have so insulated ourselves from the natural world that we are visiting tremendous tragedies upon it because we do not consider ourselves a part of it. When we reintegrate and consider ourselves a part of it, when we are one with the environment, when we are, when we are dirt, <laughs> dirt worshiping tree huggers, when we, when we love all the other creatures and, and different plants and animals, then they are part of us and we will be much less prone to destroy them. And right now we don't have that attitude. We believe that that's all there for us to take. But until we gain a, better understanding and respect for all the other forms of life. We are going to continue to soil our nest and destroy the very the very land and water that support us. And we've got to figure out that this is not the way to go. So we have to relearn. We have to retrain ourselves in our relationship with the environment and learn to respect other life forms and not consider them as secondary or tertiary, that they are as important as we are in so many regards and we depend upon that. And that comes down to basic respect. enjoyed my conversation with Neil DeBall and that as spring gets ever so closer and we start returning to our gardens that we all will consider adding more native plants to our landscapes and I hope you will share Nature Revisited with friends, family and colleagues and subscribe to Nature Revisited on your favorite podcast server. You can also follow us on Instagram, YouTube, or our website, nordenproductions.com. That's Norden, N-O-O-R 
www.denproductions.com. If you would like to share your thoughts or comments, please send them to us through our website contact page, and we will share them on our Instagram page. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Orden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, remember, we are nature. <laughs>